Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today we're revisiting some material from the previous podcast and we're thinking again about Murdoch and childhood reading, although we're focusing particularly on uh, Murdoch and Peter Pan and her love of Peter Pan. Um, now this is a book that she didn't um, come to early in life like uh, Treasure Island or, or um, Kipling's Kim. She came to this much later in life. Um, however, she did see uh, the play as a child. Joining me to discuss the really strong impact, I think, that uh, Peter Pan had on her writing from the uh, late 50s onwards. Um, wonderful to have uh, Professor Anne Rowe back with us. Um, hello, Anne. Hello, Miles. Um, Anne, of course, was on the previous podcast and has uh, done so much in Murdoch Studies. Um, and her latest book, um, Iris Murdoch in the Writers and Their Work series, came out with Liverpool University Press just a couple of years ago. And Anne will be talking to us primarily about how um, Murdoch uses um, Peter Pan within um, a word child as an intertextual reference point. Also joining me is um, another regular on the podcast, uh, Dr. Francis White. Hello, Francis. Hello. Lovely to have you back. And uh, Francis is going to uh, kick us off today uh, by thinking about uh, where Peter Pan sits within Murdoch's life and work. Francis, I'm going to pass over to you. Thank you, Miles. Well, I want to start with the extraordinary nature of Peter Pan, because most myths are ancient and have come from way back and we don't really know their origins. But this is like a 20th century myth that evolved and was created partly by J.M. Barry, but also by the five boys that he looked after after their parents had died of cancer and sort of brought up. And he took them camping and took them out in the woods and had adventures with them and things. And they they were the genesis of the book really but it's a very unstable text which evolved the novel wasn't written till after the play and he's not sure how the play came to be and it kept changing all the time so it's a most peculiar um, piece of art altogether and i think there are various reasons why it's become of great significance to iris murdoch to her life and to her work one of the main themes of it obviously is the question of childhood versus adulthood and how you progress from childhood into adulthood and the fear of doing so and the losses incurred by doing so. But another thing that's quite strong in it is androgyny, oddly enough. Peter Pan is very often played by women, Mia Farrow amongst others. Many, many women act actors have played Peter Pan, a bit like a pantomime boy. And that's an unusual thing. It's also about death. And there are biographical considerations to why it's really significant to Murdoch, one of which is her own very mixed sexuality. And I just want to read you a tiny bit from a letter that she sent to Kreisel when she was in her late 40s. That I am probably not at all normal sexually. I'm not a lesbian, in spite of one or two uneventful on that front. I'm certainly strongly interested in men, but I don't think I really want normal, normal heterosexual relations with them. It's taken me a long time to find this out. I think I am sexually rather odd, which is a male homosexual in female guise, but I am very incompetently organized sexually. So this is a theme within the book, which we'll return to later, that I think touched her quite closely. Another part of it is the immense amount of imagination, the whole make-believe world, which her own mind was full all the time of stories and make-believe and the question of keeping make-believe and reality apart and knowing when, when you're in one and when you're in the other, which is often quite a question in her work. And there, there was also a great need to retain her inner child, I think. She felt very safe as a child. She said she lived in perfect universe of perfect harmony until she was 13 and went to boarding school. She knew the statue from childhood. She used to walk past it on her way to school when she was little. She saw the play, as Miles has said, but she didn't know the novel until later. But she does have quite a bit to say when she was at a conference in Caen about how she feels about Peter Pan. Peter Pan means a great deal to me. I expect everybody knows about Peter Pan. My first introduction was in Kensington Gardens when I was about four or something, and I went to see that famous statue of Peter Pan, which is so weird and sinister, although that did not occur to me when I was four, rather later on. The play of Peter Pan has an extraordinary story if you reflect on it. For instance, the very interesting oddity, of the same character being both Mr. Darling and Captain Hook, and the retreat of Mr. Darling to the dog kennel, and the division of Wendy's life between Peter and the real world, and the crocodile. It's full of strange symbolisms. 
John very kindly introduced me to a remarkable book, which I didn't know existed, which is the novel of Peter Pan. And so that was her sort of introduction to him. He'd been there from the beginning, but statue first, interestingly, not, not literature, really. When she met John, he says that they were like naughty children together, and they were seen as a sort of child couple in some strange way, not as real adults. And when they first met, he said, we talked without stopping. It was endless, childish chatter, putting our faces together as we talked. I think Iris was accustomed only to talk properly, as it were, considering, pausing, modifying, weighing her words. She talked like a philosopher. Now she babbled like a child, so did I. With arms around each other, kissing and rubbing noses, we rambled on and on, seeming to invent on the spot. And as we talked, a whole infantile language of our own. She put her head back and laughed at me incredulously from time to time. She seemed to be giving way to some deep need of which she'd been wholly unconscious. The need to throw away not only the maneuvers and rivalries of intellects, but the emotional fears and fascinations, the powers and struggles and surrenders of adult loving. And I think that's very interesting that her marriage was a sort of retreat to a world of childhood again, and somewhere she felt safe and was unthreatened by the reality of the world around her. And then um, I maybe leave this to later. John gives a lovely, lovely description of um, going to the statue towards the end of her life, but we'll see if we have time for that. Oh, I'm sure we'll squeeze it in. I hope so. It's interesting, actually, that John and his brother Michael have, of course, the two names of the boys, <laughs> Wendy's brothers, in Peter Pan. And John himself was quite a Peter Pan figure. He was the youngest of the three. He didn't really want to grow up, wanted to stay with his mother, didn't like being sent away to boarding school. He was a bit of a lost boy in some ways. And there's another strange thing that is said, actually, in Peter Pan itself. That this, this, the strange boy did not alarm Mrs. Darling because she had seen him before in the faces of many women who have no children. And I found that an extraordinary remark. And of course, Iris and John had no children. So there's an extent mm. to which I think Iris herself may identify with Peter Pan as a woman who has no children. It's interesting thoughts. I have no proof for any of this. No, it is interesting. Of course, Peter Pan comes up as a, as a figure um, both in a literary sense, but also, as, as you say, you mentioned the statue in Kensington Gardens, that, that, that figure pops up. It, it seems to be a, as soon as she knows that the, that the novel exists and John introduces her and, she's, and she reads it, it's like it's a, one of these, one of, one of her many touchstones, although a very important one, that she keeps picking up on. Yes. Why do you think that is, Francis? Why do you think that, that this particular, is it to do with innocence and the corruption of innocence or is it to do something else entirely? I think it's partly that, but I think Peter Conradi um, put his finger on a very strong point when he wrote an essay about writing her biography, in which he included a portion on Peter Pan. And he says, her novels have been called crash courses in maturity. Growing up in each is always to be begun again. And so many of her novels are about people trying to negotiate this passage from childishness, if not actual childhood, to maturity. And he says, a 40-year-old, 90-year-old, sorry, Catholic priest once remarked, at the bottom, there are no adults, we all stay children. And he says, Peter Pan might be taken to illustrate this perennial theme. J.M. Barry noted in 1921 as the real meaning of that terrible masterpiece, desperate attempts to grow up, but can't. And I think there is something very strong here. She knows there are no adults. In her characters, there's almost not an adult to be found. Childishness, the immaturity, the problem stay with us throughout lives. And I want to pick up on a couple of things from the novels, but not a word child, which Anne will talk about in the moment. But there's an extraordinary passage in A Good Apprentice. And in The Good Apprentice, I'm sorry, this is a spoiler for people. Edward has caused his friend Mark to die by giving him drugs and Mark walked out of the window. And Edward is contemplating this, he, he died. Smiling, he walked sailed out like Peter Pan. That was the first play Edward ever saw, and it still held for him the greatest moment of all theatre. Peter's appearance at that loft nursery window, looking in out of the dark night at the sleeping children, alien, excluded, sinister. No ghost which ever later walked in Edward's shuddering imagination had been more terrible than that flying boy. 
Edward found himself suddenly swaying. He got down hastily from the chair. The idea came to him, supposing tonight, after I fall asleep, Mark comes flying through the darkness and lands upon the windowsill and very quietly pushes up the sash. And she uses this image, an incredible sinister image, and Giles Araby, the theatre director in the Sea the Sea, remembers putting on Peter Pan and the incredible silences of the theatre and that silence before Peter comes in. But what I wanted to end with here and pass over to Anne for the moment is that if you really want to know, explore Peter Pan in Iris Murdoch's fiction and in her moral psychology properly, you need to read chapter four of Sacred Space Beloved City, Iris Murdoch's London, which is an absolute masterpiece of a book which Anne and Cheryl put together, Cheryl Bowley put together um, some years ago now. And that chapter goes through Peter Pan in all his ramifications. It's beautiful and illustrated with the statue. It's a, a lovely chapter. But I know Anne wants to talk about a work child, so I'll leave that to you. I think that's a lovely place to, to pass over to Anne, actually. And, and to say, of course, that um, Sacred Space, Beloved City um, came out in paperback not that long ago and is now um, very reasonably priced. But anyway, we'll have a link to that book if you want to get hold of it. Um, in the um, in the description for the uh, for the podcast itself. Anne, let's pass over to you. Um, Obviously, you've, you've been thinking a, a lot about Peter Pan. I know you've taught it um, in um, when, when you were working at Kingston. Give, give us your impressions of how um, Barry's work relates to, um, to Murdoch's. Well, the first thing, thank you, Francis, for, for those nice words uh, about sacred space. And the first thing I've got on my list of things to say is that uh, Cheryl is very much in the background here in, in mm. everything I've got to say. Uh, it was she who introduced me to the idea of, of Peter Pan. So um, much thanks there. Go to Cheryl for all this. Um, Francis, what you were saying about Iris as a Peter Pan character seems to me that as they got older, John and, and Iris, they reverted more and more into this childish world. When I was um, writing the, the Christmas talk, it struck me forcibly how they cohabited in this really, really childlike world and how this, this silence in the play before Peter Pan taps at the window. It seemed like that she gets more and more afraid of the darkness coming in and, and they cleave together much more strongly. And that they actually create this childish language, as you say, where they, they conversed with each other. Yeah, Peter um, says that like the children in Peter Pan, she was divided between two worlds, the nursery world of Steeple Aston with its wind in the willows food and the never never land of London to explore outside. Yeah, yeah. I think there was an underlying fear mm. uh, with this world that she created because she was incredibly aware of the dangers. And as you say, the great danger points for her are when people can't negotiate this transition from the child into the adult and all sorts of things that can impede that and affect the child. And, and she, as you say, there's lots of novels. There's An Unofficial Rose, The Black Prince, Sacred and Profane Love Machine, uh, Good apprentice. You pull good apprentice, yeah. an accidental man. Um, mm. It comes up again and again, usually to do with male characters, but not always. There are some female characters who experience this difficulty. Um, but it, in all in the novels, it is always this desire for innocence that is being corrupted by something very dark and sinister. So I think there are three influences. There's the play that she saw. Um, there's an interesting thing uh, about the play. Someone in an interview says to her, um, asked her about it and she, have, had she ever seen the play? And she said, no, she was invited to see it, but she had such strong and moving feelings about it. Uh, she didn't want to spoil it mm -hmm. by going to see, it, to see it. I think there was a famous actor um, acting in it and she said, no, she wouldn't see it. So the play did have a, a, a very, profound effect on her as, as a young child, I think. So the second influence, I think, is the statue, um, which you came across in Kensington Gardens. Now, Peter Conradi says she came across the statue when she was about four, mm. and that was <clears throat> always one of her favourite places. Um, she would have gone on walks through, when she was at the Froebel and seen the, the lovers, um, the, the, sorry, the statue there, and when she was meeting her own lovers, as a young woman, she would go back to the statue. It was one of her favorite places. Um, but she describes it in that interview in Cannes that you're talking about, Francis, as weird and sinister. 
Um, and it's not difficult to see why that statue can be perceived in that way. At first glance, it's charming. Miles, if you can get a, a, a picture of that to accompany. Um, we'll, we'll definitely have a picture of that for the yeah, podcast, yeah. That's great. I mean, Peter Pan is standing aloft at a, a bowl of a tree. He's playing his pipe, um, looking very charming, but clambering him up af after him. There are lots of fairies. Now, these fairies are very provocatively dressed. They have very, very tight, whimsy, slim um, clothes on. And you can see their prominent body features underneath. Um, and then Wendy is looking up very confused at Peter Pan uh, as he's playing his pipe. So I think it's the complexity of this image of the statue uh, that first triggered her interest and why uh, these characters are portrayed. Now, the same applies to the book. As you said, it, John Bailey introduced her to the book much later in her life. But they used to talk about it a great deal, she said. Uh, and and they, she became very interested in it. Now you can see in lots of, of the novels, the influence of, of, of the book um, on the novels and the way that children are presented as sexualized. The child, children themselves in Arius Murdoch's novels are often sexually attracted. I mean, there's Miranda in An Unofficial Rose. So she didn't see childhood as this innocent space. She saw childhood as a very complex place that could be very disorientating, I think, for adults and children as well. So um, where to go next? There is just so much to, to say about it, really. Um, what she does, I think, in A Word Child is explore in much more detail than she does in any other of the novels, this complexity of childhood and the dangers of childhood. And she does this in a, in a book that is very much more class conscious and socially aware than in any of the others. So we have a male character who is from a different milieu to the other characters in her novels. Um, he's a working class child, Hilary Bird, who's been damaged, very, very badly damaged by his childhood and his upbringing. So um, Peter Pan is actually mentioned directly in this novel. Um, she, she references it in several places. Um, I'm going to read you just a little bit from page 11. This is page 11 of the oh, vintage oh, edition. Yes, sorry, this is my copy of the book. Um, right. Hilary Bird is in Lovely. his office and um, someone says to him, uh, well, actually he's at the Impiats for dinner, I think here. Don't you like Peter Pan, Hilary? He says, it's my favorite play. Hilary thinks Freddie will desecrate it. No need to ask who will play Hook and Mr. Darling. The director always bags the star part. Freddie is an actor manqué. A great ambiguous work of art, says Clifford Lang, who's Hilary's homosexual friend. Will you favor a Freudian interpretation? No, says Hilary, I think a Marxist one. Ugh, don't be so negative, Hilary. And Hilary says, not, why not a Christian interpretation? I think there's a key there to the different ways that you can read the inclusion of these many references to Peter Pan in the text. You could make uh, a Freudian interpretation, a Marxist interpretation, and there are so many references to Christianity in this play. You can think about whether or not Christianity could offer a kind of salvific um, opportunity for forgiveness that these characters, these Peter Pan characters who simply can't grow up, where do they get salvation from um, and who can help them? So um, she wants us, I think, in this book to understand something also about, as you mentioned, Francis, the nature of the product of, of, of the composition of Peter Pan. Since Jacqueline Rose uh, published The Case of Peter Pan and the Impossibility of Children's Fiction, and I think that was in 1984, the standard interpretation is the one that uh, is referred to that I've, in the passage I've just read, a Freudian interpretation. We see it through um, J.M. Barry's desire for the, the Llewellyn Davis boys. In fact, you know, the idea that there was a paedophilic instinct there. And certainly I think in Peter Pan itself, the Freudian unconscious takes over. This is a very unstable text, as you said, Francis. And Barry's 
subconscious mind, his desire for these boys, if it was that, I'm not sure that was any kind of paedophilic interest in little Ryan Davis boys, but lots of people do think that. But the thing about Peter Pan is that the text overtakes the, the creative process. It is the unconscious mind. It, the book is a rant. It's a rant about parents. It's a rant about society. It's, it's a rant about public schools and he loses control. So I think what Murdoch does in A Word Child is take that idea about who is in control of the literary text um, in, in a text where it's a first person narrator. Now in other texts where she has first person narrators, I think it is possible to see Murdoch's own subconscious creeping in. I think in A Word Child, it is very much more measured. What she wants to do is explore why these children who become Peter Pan characters who are, find it impossible to negotiate this transition from childhood into adulthood, how it works. This is what she wants to do. She doesn't want to reveal about herself, um, which she's not so, uh, she doesn't mind too much in, in other novels, although she says she doesn't do it. I think she does. Um, but in A Word Child, it is very, very controlled, and there are very um, sequential mentions of Peter Pan and the statue and the novel until you get about two thirds of the way through. Then she kind of leaves Peter Pan behind and her own creative imagination takes over. And then I think you can see something absolutely brilliant. I think this is one of her finest novels and one of the best because she leaves this play, this idea play with Peter Pan behind and lets her own creative imagine. And she gives Hillary uh, his final story. She doesn't rely on the text to direct what happens to him. She, she leaves this causality of bad childhoods and upbringing behind uh, and leaves it um, you know, up, to his, up to her own interpretation of it. So, so it's fascinating um, in the sense that we have a very, very practical and a very, very psychoanalytic reading, a social Marxist reading to do with class and upbringing, and you have this um, idea of the creative text and who's in charge. I just got a little piece here, from, this is from Peter Pan, and this is something she's picking up directly from Peter Pan the book, and this is quite a surprise I think to read this in Peter Pan. This is what Barry's putting into the mouth of Peter Pan. I don't know whether you have ever seen a map of a person's mind. Doctors sometimes draw maps of other parts of you and your own map can become intensely interesting, but catch them trying to draw a map of a child's mind, which is not only confused, but keeps going round all the time. There are zigzagging lines on it, just like your temperature on a card. And these are probably roads in the island for the Neverland is almost more or less an island with astonishing splashes of color here and there and coral reefs and savages and gnomes who are mostly tailors. <laughs> so um, anyway, I hope I've managed to convey that complexity in the text and this battle between constructing a text out of the unconscious mind and constructing a text over which you want to have complete control and to say something very important about society. So this idea of damaged childhoods, we find out about Hillary's, the cruelty he suffered in childhood, the deprivation, the loss of his home, bad parenting. Peter Pan and A Word Child are books about bad parenting. They're books about bad mothering uh, and bad fathering. There's Mr. Darling who goes into the, um, into the dog kennel uh, and the loss of that um, direction and that authority in a child's life and the loss of the love of a mother has complete devastating effects on Peter Pan who will not grow up because he's afraid. He's afraid of adults because he's had no guide or no guide to understanding his own unconscious mind. And the interesting thing about Peter is that he has no memory. He completely loses control and he literally does not understand and forgets what he's done. So does Hilary Bird in A Word Child. Is Hilary Bird the murderer of Gunnar Jopling, who is his alter ego, her first wife? Uh, he's certainly the murderer of his second wife, in, incidentally, or by implication. Will he be the 
that the, you know, the cause of the death of another woman at the end of the novel. So she's looking at how this um, split personality that is caused by somebody who is not able to negotiate be becoming a child and an adult simultaneously, whether or not that can ever be overcome uh, and, and whether or not it gives them a dangerous um, side to their personality of which they are not aware. It's the psychopathic, it's a study of the psychopath. A, a word child is a study of a psychopathic mind because Hilary Bird does not know whether or not he killed Anne Jopling or not. Uh, mm. He just doesn't know that, he doesn't have access to that. So when we get to the end of the book uh, and Murdoch has, has woven her own interpretations of all this deep psychological profile into the novel, we have this conundrum and she says she does not want the end of the book to be set in stone. It has to be left, she says, ambiguous. So we have Hilary who is in Neverland in the snow with the snowflakes falling. He's been into the church. He's come out. His sister is now safely married. And Tommy Ulmuster, who has always wanted him to marry her, uh, finally says, we are now going to make this work. Uh, we are going, you are going to, I'm going to be your next. I'm going to be your wife. And he says, are you Thomasina? Well, if I were Tommy Ulmuster, I would get the house out of there pretty quickly. <laughs> um, I think it's quite, uh, I think this, the, the, the dialogue with the Peter Pan characters who simply can't grow up because they're so damaged is quite pessimistic in this book. Um, Hillary does come and there are long sections at the end of the book where Hillary does come to understand himself and he does come to some understanding of his relationship with Gunnar Jopling, whose wife he's been responsible for the death of, two wives in fact. But um, when he does come to that understanding, he does not yet know that Tommy is responsible for sending that letter that causes Gunnar Jopling to find him with Lady Kitty. Mm. Um, and I don't think he can, I don't think that it's realistic to expect that that character can stop this terrible damaged uh, approach to, to, to people he loves and that he will damage more people. Um, and, you know, it, it's, um, it's a deeply profound uh, and complicated novel. And just saying what I've said is just the, the, the slim end of what must amount to about 15 pages of notes and uh, passages that I've sat with students and we've looked at and talked about and analyzed, you know. Um, it's an extraordinarily complex psychological study of a damaged human being who suffers from this particular Peter Pan complex. That's, that's, that was wonderful, Anne. Thank you very much. I want to. I, I just want to pick you up on something that you said. Yeah. That Murdoch takes it about two thirds of the way through the book and then kind of leaves Peter Pan behind and then. She doesn't actually working... leave him behind, but he's. It becomes more um, studied. It, it isn't flowing in. It isn't really. Yeah. It's. It is almost as if she's thinking, um, "I need to pick up on that." She does this with paintings as well. When, like with, with um, uh, The Nice and the Good, which she takes the Tintoretto in, or the Bronzino, sorry, in the National Gallery. Most of the way through, this is threaded through. And then all of a sudden she just abandons them. It's mm. like as if her own um, psychological studies in her own, maybe her own unconscious takes over and she leaves these symbols behind. Um, you, I'm thinking about the world child, is there a particular moment where it becomes apparent that she's she's kind of, there's a, a slackening or a, a lessening of the interest and use of Peter Pan? And is it connected with something that, um, that Hillary has done or is thinking about? I think it comes um, towards the end on page, uh, I'm saying on page 339, just to give you some idea where in the book. Um, the statue actually makes an appearance in the novel. Mm -hmm. And it's if she's really tying this up now in her mind, what's happening here. Um, he's meeting Lady Kitty, who's Gunnar Jopling's second wife. With his, it, This is a really, really bad decision. After being responsible for Anne Jopling's death, to have any kind of relationship with Gunnar Jopling's second wife is lunacy. Now, somewhere in his unconscious mind, he knows that. But it, it's just the desire to, to be disruptive, the desire to harm, the desire to hurt, to pay back somebody from a, an upper class upbringing, 
um, this idea of, you know, between Hook and Peter Pan of bad form, good form. This this debate mm. about what comprises bad form and good form, going all the way through Peter Pan and through um, a word child. And this is something he should not be doing. Somewhere he knows that, but he can't stop himself. He really can't. And this is how he tries to tell himself that everything's okay, that this is just a childish um, inclination that he's just satisfying by meeting Lady Kitty, that it can be innocent. They can be as innocent as children. He's made his mind up he's not going to have an affair with her and he genuinely believes that that's the case. And I think that probably is the case. And this is what how he, he arranges to meet her by the Peter Pan statue in Kensington Gardens. The meeting with Kitty was the climax of a quiet joy. There had been anguish, fear, indecision, then gradually the brightness of her presence passed beforehand, obliterating all else. Then I was with her and there was a strange blankness, an utter calm of delight, suddenly down into the furthest crannies of all being well. It was also strangely simple too, with the blameless simplicity as of childhood. Even Peter Pan, heaped up with snow, a scarcely decipherable crystal mound with streaks of polished gold, seemed for once a monument to innocence, as unsmirched as the very children who came to dig with little woolly mittened hands for the rabbits and the mice whom they knew so well. And Kitty and I were too like children. We laughed and we swung along together. Um, it's, it's incredibly poignant. You know, she does say somewhere, these Peter Pan characters are not demons, they're fallen angels. And there's this incredible balance that she's trying to keep by giving you, um, you know, cataloging the, the damage that's been done to this character, the effect to other people, to his sister, to his workmates, to the people he shares his flat with, to the women in his life, he doesn't know himself at all. You know, he, he can't see himself. He thinks he's sexually unattractive. There's women falling at his feet all the time. He doesn't understand the danger of his own potent sexuality. So it's not his fault in a way because he genuinely has no idea of the danger he poses to himself or other people. And, and at the end of the book, <clears throat> and I've suggested that he, he will go on. Uh, he says right at the beginning of the cook, the book, if I marry you, Thomasine, I will kill you with an axe. Um, he doesn't understand his own danger and she wants the readers to understand how dangerous this character is. At the same time, she wants us to understand the complexity and, and the causes and the effects of, of, of such a terrible, terrible upbringing uh, that he had. And that's, you know, that, that, that's great. Thank, thank you for explaining that particular kind of hinge that the, the novel works off around the around the statue. Yeah. Fra yeah. Fra Francis, I'm, I'm going to pass over to you, I think, because I'm sure you've got some um, reflections yes. on what Anne's just said. I do. Um, I have some things I want to pick up on out of the book, the Peter Pan book itself. And chimes in completely what Anne's just said. But Barry writes, the difference between Peter Pan and the other lost boys at the time was that they knew it was make-believe, whereas to him, make-believe and true were exactly the same thing. Yeah. And you feel this with Hillary that he doesn't know the difference between what he's telling himself and what's actually true. He's a very Peter Pan character. And Murdoch was very suspicious, I think, of mothering, of parenting. Um, a lot of her novels show bad effects of parenting, as you've said. She was also deeply suspicious of psychoanalysis. And I think they go together so strongly in this book. And I, I wasn't struck by this at all as a child when I read it, but reading it now, it's horrific. Mrs. Darling first heard of Peter when she was tidying up her children's minds. Yes. <laughs> a horrible image. It's the nightly custom of every good mother after her children are asleep to rummage in their minds and put things straight for the next morning. And so it goes on. It's absolutely horrendous. I could feel at times my own mother rummaging in my mind. <laughs> I did not like it. <laughs> and of course, psychoanalysts rummage in our minds. Yeah. And I yeah. think Murdoch felt this was a very dangerous thing to do. It really is. But there are other elements of the Peter Pan text that seem to me to say something about the way in which she herself constructs her tales and her, her, her stories. There's a marvellous little section where all the lost boys are arguing underground. They're telling tales of each other. And it says, 
the hateful telling broke out again. Slightly is coughing on the table, drinks down with mummy apples, Curly is taking both apple rolls and yams. Nibs is speaking with his mouth full. I complain of the prince, I complain of Curly, I complain of Nibs. Now you get passages of dialogue like that, both in the word child, a word child, <laughs> but um, <coughs> in an accidental man, where it's not accredited who's speaking what, who's speaking which line, it doesn't really matter, it's a chorus effect. And I think Murdoch may have learned this a bit from Barry here. And there's another quite incredible bit where he's, um, it's actually quite a short book, much shorter than I'd remembered, because you get the impression of so much more than is actually there, than is kept in the text. And I think Murdoch's books give you that feeling as well. There's such a fecundity of imagination, so much storytelling. And he, he discusses which of various adventures, he gives you little abstracts of um, what, what he could tell us about next. He says, which of these adventures shall we choose? The best way would be to toss for it. I have tossed and the lagoon has won. Of course, I could do it again and make it best out of three. However, perhaps Ferris to stick to the lagoon. And this impression of overwhelming amounts of imagination, overwhelming amounts of storytelling available to Barry and to Murdoch is, is a very strong link between them, I think. Another thing that struck me was this mixed sexuality stuff, because you've got Hook, <coughs> a very, very macho pilot, pirate, very violent pirate man. But in his darkest nature, there was a touch of the feminine, as in all the great pirates. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the very confused um, situation where Ita and Wendy are discussing the Lost Boys, and she's talking about how they take after him and things. There are progeny. And Peter says, rather confused and scaredly, it is make-believe, isn't it, that I'm their father? And she says, oh, yes, of course it is. And then she asks him, what are your exact feelings for me? And he replies, those of a devoted son, Wendy. Mm -hmm. So there's complete confusion and shifting here between being the father, being the son. And Peter, like Hillary, doesn't realize that he is sexually a potent symbol of attraction, yes. not yes. only for Wendy, but for Tiger Lily and Tinkerbell. They're all jealous of each other over him. They all want him. And he has no sexual interest whatsoever. He's just into adventure. And then finally, there's the fairies. But this is odd bit that I hadn't struck me again before reading it this time. The fairies are very strange. They live in nests on top of trees. The mauve ones are boys and the white ones are girls. And the blue ones are just little cities who are not sure what they are. And that goes back to the passage I read in the letter at the beginning to Chrysler, that before the days of LGBT and um, gender transference and everything that we're very aware of now, Murdoch and Barry before her was aware of this, again, this shifting, this unstable question about sexuality. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, I think that there are a lot of parallels between the way that the things they're afraid of and the way they look at things, and this just incredible, exuberant imagination that can make things that are so new, both, both Peter Pan itself, Barry's work, and Iris Murdoch's work. I, I think you're absolutely right. And if you think, uh, I mentioned about um, Jacqueline Rose's book, being mm. uh, written in 1984, when all this um, <clears throat> sexual, the sexuality with inherent in the Peter Pan story came into the sort of public discussion of the book. Um, A Word Child was written in 1975. I mean, she was, she was there discussing all those things you've talked about. I mean, all the women in Peter Pan, they all want to be mothers. All the women in A Word Child, everybody wants to be a mother. Everybody wants Hillary to father their child. But the men, the Peter Pan, Peter Pan characters, are completely innocent in that, set, in, in that sense. Hillary is attracted to women. He can have a normal sexual relationship with them for a very short time. Then he doesn't want to do it anymore. That's it. It's finished. And this happens to quite a lot. If you think of a lot of Murdoch's male characters, uh, that sexual relationship peters out. Um, and she was acutely aware of, of this mentality, this particular kind of male mentality. Um, I think years before um, all this uh, and the relationship with that story, years before it came into the public domain. So I suppose thinking about her other major male figures of the 70s, thinking of Charles Araby and Bradley Pearson in particular, do we feel that there's an underlying, not perhaps not as much, but an underlying connection with Peter Pan with them as well? Definitely. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Um, I've actually, I'm, I mean, I've got a list here uh, of, of the books where I obviously at some point when I was <laughs> thinking it, Randall, <laughs> Randall Perrinet. Yes. In, in an artificial rose. Certainly Bradley Pearson. 
um, Blaise Gavinder, he has the same, many of the same issues, and that's in the Sacred and Profane Love Machine. Rosanoff, the philosopher's pupil who falls in love with uh, his granddaughter. Um, loads of Oedipal stuff in the novels. Uh, you've mentioned Edward Baltram, Francis. Um, Matthew Gibson Gray also pays a visit in an accidental man to the statue. And, and you know, he, he can't successfully negotiate this transition either between, he, he keeps pinching his brother's girlfriends, doesn't he, Francis, if I remember yes. Matthew? Yes, he does. And he runs past the statue. He can never get past that childhood, that adolescent need to, to occupy, um, to, to take over his brother's love affairs and to take mm. over the women. I, there is actually, now then come to think of it, in the book in the Brotherhood, there is a visit to the statue, but um, Bennett Barnell visits the statue. That's the dilemma. That, oh, sorry. Yes, in the book on the Brotherhood, it's the snail. The snail. He's looking yeah. for somewhere to put the snail, and he thinks he won't leave it there by the statue, but he thinks about doing so. Yeah. But in D Jackson's Dilemma, doesn't Bennett go to the statue and goes home in peace? Yes. And he found his home. Yes. It's almost as if the statue makes these appearances in the novel, and then finally she finds, or the characters find peace with it. Uh, Bennett, I think, is the only character who comes to understand himself and feels he can leave that statue behind and go home. Yes, I think but you're right. Maybe full circle at the end. There's, a, there's another thing about um, Murdoch and Barry's work that I think is quite interesting, is that he has a shifting relationship with the text, so that sometimes it's we and sometimes it's they. And so sometimes he's including himself and sometimes not. And Murdoch does this as narrator, shifts in and out of perspective. And Barry says towards the end of Peter Pan, that is all we are, lookers on. Mm. And he's thinking about himself as a narrator, which I think Murdoch had a sense of at times as well, of look, a looker on of her own stories. But also it's to do with reader response. We are always lookers on to the story, whether it's the story of Peter Pan or the story of um, one of Murdoch's novels. And there's this sense of being excluded and outside somehow and looking in on something that you're never quite part of it. Well, in a way, it's a safe space. The reader looking in on this, where they're, they're looking at these awful complications. Um, and, and you can explore, I think readers can explore their own sexuality, their own hang-ups from that safe space she's creating. I'm sure yes. that this novel would touch chords with many, many people reading it uh, and help be helpful in, in getting people to negotiate safely mm. that pro certain problems that they might be experiencing. I think she's well aware of her role in some sense as a counsellor. I think this is a role that she got increasingly nervous about. She was aware that these are very, very dangerous subjects. They're dark and they affect people's lives. And she is meddling in something that sometimes I think she feels she has to be very careful about. And I think from this point, when this novel was written in the mid 1970s, that becomes um, not an issue with her, but something she explores in the green light in a lot more detail. The, the role of the writer and uh, the way that there is a certain moral responsibility to, to the material that you're putting out there. It, mm. it, so how she develops how she develops her moral psychology yes. through her through her fiction. Yeah, and yeah. and I suppose we we can see that in developmental stages as well. We we've talked about a number of these novels. Um, obviously, there, there's we've had we had a whole podcast on Word Child uh, last year, although actually we didn't touch that much on Peter Pan. So I'm very grateful for the both of you to come coming on and talking about this in in, in so much detail. But you. I, I, I want to pick up a little bit on um, that, that this idea in um, Jackson's dilemma that we that Peter Pan is left behind the statue is left as a statue it's no longer an active in some form of almost malevolent presence that's felt of in, in other novels so in, you know this, this this Peter Pan factor if you want to call it and do you I suppose a question for both of you really do you see Murdoch as um, as moving the same way and how she wants to develop her thoughts about fiction fictionality and also how she imposes herself upon her writing and what she's saying to her readership. I think it's part of a farewell to her. Uh, I think Jackson's Dilemma is her farewell to her creative writing. Sure. In her life, you know, I started, at, I've come full circle, I've said they, they had this magical 
relationship towards the end of their lives she 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 developed she started um her love for stuffed animals she she died with her teddy bear jimbo i think in her arms and miles if you remember when we were in the the attic in Charlbury Road. I had the bejesus scared out of me when I picked up a plastic bag and there were furry things in it. And I yes. was yeah. <laughs> afraid of what was going to jump out of there. And, and there were little furry toys in there. Mm. It's almost as if she feels we have to stop prodding, picking at the saw of childhood, that there is so much about childhood that is magical. There is so much that is life affirming and joyful and that she wants to celebrate that uh, in a way that um, maybe is leaving some of this more dark, difficult side behind, as if she's had enough of that now, and is ready to lay her pen to rest and, and has said all that she's got to say on it. A good point, Miles, to read the lovely passage that John wrote about a late Christmas when she was going into dementia. And yes, please do, yeah. It's marvellous. They, they always used to go up to London on Christmas Day and see his brother Michael. So we had John and Michael together again there. And they would go to the Round Pond and look at the statue. And this Christmas, there was nobody around the statue, not even a Japanese couple with a camera. Young Pan himself, bronze fingers delicately crook, his double packed to his lips, as the sublimely sinister indifference of childhood. And Hook, his great enemy, was always made nervous by that pose. He considered Peter to have good form without knowing it, which is, of course, the best form of all. Poor Hook was in despair about this. It made Iris laugh when I told her years ago before we were married. I read a bit of the book to her. Iris, I recall, was so amused that she later put the good form business into one of her own novels. Iris's amusement may even have been shared in a quiet way by the sculptor himself, who covered the base of the group with elves and rabbits and snails in the Victorian fairy tale tradition. The top, the elegant figure of a much more worldly young woman scrambling determinedly over the plinth to proposition Peter, giving the bystanders an agreeable view of a polished bronze derriere. It is clad in a modishly draped and close-fitting Edwardian skirt, and she looks much too old for Peter anyway. Could it be that Sir George Frampton, as well as being an excellent artist and sculptor, sculptor had a sense of humour about these matters? It certainly looks like it on such a quiet, sunny Christmas morning with real squirrels hopping all around the statue, vainly soliciting the nuts which the fat little beasts have no trouble in getting from tourists on ordinary busier days. As we walk round and admire, I tell Iris that my mother assured me that if I looked hard enough over the railings, I might see fairies, perhaps even Peter Pan himself. I believed her. I could almost believe her now with the tranquil sunshine in the park, making a midwinter spring full of the illusion of fairies and flowers as well as real birdsong. Iris is listening, which she rarely does, and smiling too. Something or someone this morning has reassured her, given her for an hour or two, what the prayer books call that peace which the world cannot give. And I like to think of her at the end of her life, having known that statue since she was four years old, getting a peacefulness from being back there and uh, in the same place. Absolutely. And also, I think we have to remember that Peter Pan is incredibly funny. It's hysterically funny. It's pantomimic, um, you know, and, and where the, the children are all, all encouraged in, the, you know, to laugh and, and join in. And I thought this as I was just glancing through it again for this talk, I thought, um, we mustn't just focus on the seriousness and the, the dark side of this. Um, it, you know, Peter Pan is such a joyful book mm. and there's such a lot of humor in a word chat. I, I mean, I hope I haven't put people off and made it sound <laughs> incredibly serious which it is, but it's funny and, it, and it's witty and the characters are funny and witty. And there is much joy um, to be had in reading things that she, you know, are very concerned about, but we must never lose sight of the joy. I agree. And I think we need to foreground with all the novels, just how funny they are. The reason we return to reading her again and again is because she makes you laugh. I must have read them 10 times and I laugh anew every time. Yes. And the same yeah. with Barry. And that's an incredible quality of author. And we do lose that with murder when we talk about her sometimes. Because um, we talk about the darker themes which are there. Yeah. And we forget that she's also just mercilessly funny, witty, brilliant. Mm. And you laugh at different things at different times of reading. I yes. Think. Yes. So, Anne, to, to, uh, as we come towards the, um, the end of this podcast, where would you see Peter Pan as one of, 
in her kind of um, pantheon of influences, I suppose. Is is he as important a figure as some of the her other sort of fictional touchstones, or does he rank on the level of um, some of these major kind of um, real life figures that that's uh, impact on the novel? Well, how how are you seeing him in that I, regard? I think he's very strong indeed, and really, really important influence. I think what I was saying at the beginning about this extraordinary twentieth century myth that grew in a very organic way, really is involved in Murdoch's own mental processes and imaginative processes. And I would see it as a very, very important influence indeed. Mm. And the same for you, Anne? Yeah, I, I do, but it depends on which novel I'm reading. Um, sure. You know, uh, The Nice and the Good, for example, I, I see the Bronzino painting. Um, I think it, you know, if, if you were to take Peter Pan to each and every one of the novels, I'm sure you would find him there somewhere. Um, but the same goes for many, many other of her icons. She says we all have our icons, mm. which we carry with, with us. He was certainly one of her icons that she would pluck out if she wanted to express something. It's not just male characters. I mean, there's Miranda in an unofficial mm. rose who, who tries to seduce her mother's admirer. Um, if she has a particular aspect of human behavior, she, she had him in her store of mm. icons, of images, and she would pluck him out. And I think A Word Child is the great Peter Pan novel, uh, but he's there in the background in all the others, the flying boy knocking at the window, um, trying to get in. So yes, mm. important, but um, not exclusively. I think there were so many other icons that she carried in her imagination. Yes, and the people that she carried with her as well. Yes, yeah. yeah the, all of these are in the in the mix when we think about her, her fiction, aren't they? But this has been a fascinating discussion, and um, yeah, I think a really nice follow up to the um, the podcast that we did with um, with Jan on um, childhood reading. And I and again, I know we're going to come back again um, at a later date and think about childhood and adolescent characters in the novels because I think um, we talked a little bit about Miranda there and thinking about her relationship to Peter Pan, but there are. You know, childhood and adolescent characters right the way through her fiction from the Sandcastle um, through to um, through to Green Knight. So I'm sure we'll um, we'll pick up on that you've again at, at another time. Pen, Miles, you've made me think of Pen, mm. the, the 14 year old boy. Um, yes, he's in in an unofficial rose. Official rose, yeah. Yes, and his his name Pen Pan, and he has more maturity and more understanding of what it means to love another human being than any man three times his age. He's gifted in mm. understanding that you, you, you must not love the image of a woman or a girl that you see, you must love, you must learn to see past the image and love the person underneath. Um, so yeah, he's, he's hovering around all over the place. <laughs> he certainly is, yeah. So thank you very much indeed to, um, to Amro and to Francis White. And um, yeah, look forward to um, speaking to you and having you again on, the, on another podcast. And um, thank you all um, for listening. <laughs>